Today, I have a column in the Daily Beast that looks at the hostage situation that unfolded in a synagogue in Colleyville, Texas, this weekend. These kinds of anti-Semitic incidents have become depressingly routine in American society over the past several years. Despite making up 2% of the U.S. population, Jews are the victims in more than half of all hate crimes. Jews now routinely report that they have experienced anti-Semitism in the past year and since the mass shooting at the Tree of Life synagogues in Pittsburgh in 2018, Jewish places of worship have become like armed garrisons. After the initial reports trickled out of Texas, many assumed that this was yet another incident of white supremacist violence against American Jews, similar to the Tree of Life massacre. But, in this case, the perpetrator was a British Muslim. It's an unfortunate reminder that anti-Jewish hatred is not only the oldest prejudice, it's also one that is bipartisan and multicultural. Like many anti-Semites, the hostage-taker in Texas believed that Jews have disproportionate influence power, and so he thought that taking hostages in a synagogue in Texas would ensure that his demands would be met. It is an idea that is widely held across the political spectrum, from those who highlight the allegedly outsized power of prominent philanthropists like George Soros to those who see financial suasion as the explanation for American support for Israel. Quite often, non-Jews use anti-Jewish tropes or speak in the language of anti-Semitism, not even understanding the prejudicial nature of their words. That's why it's so important to listen to Jews when they talk about the sometimes subtle nature of anti-Semitism and the scars it leaves behind, just as we must listen to any minority community talk about prejudice. When I write on anti-Semitism in the United States, I tend to be much tougher on progressives than conservatives, and while I don't delve into that issue much in the Daily Beast below, it's a critically important point. American Jews don't exactly have the highest expectations for Republicans and conservatives, in general. More often than not, we're used as a tool by Republicans who pledge their fealty to fighting anti-Semitism and supporting Israel, all the while looking the other way, or winking and nodding, at anti-Jewish animus among their supporters. A political party that uses George Soros as a political foil, or invokes the Holocaust to decry vaccine mandates, is not a party that has the best interests of Jews at heart. It's also why more than 70% of American Jews vote Democratic. Since Jews have long allied with the left, our expectations are higher. Without the support of the political left and the Democratic Party, Jews are a minority community without true political and cultural allies. It's why the rise of UK Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn was so upsetting for British Jews. Labour had long been the political home of British Jewry, and the potential takeover of the party by an individual who was an anti-Semite was perceived as an existential threat. The same is here in the United States. Any slippage in the fight against anti-Semitism is a bad sign for American Jews. That's why the lack of attention from progressives to incidents of anti-Semitic violence by black and Hispanic perpetrators, as well as the failure to condemn Representative Ilhan Omar when she used anti-Semitic tropes to criticize U.S. support for Israel, is so problematic. It suggests that Jews and anti-Semitism don't count for as much in progressive circles, and certainly not in comparison to other forms of discrimination against minority communities.
If one accepts the view that the greatest threat to American Jews is right-wingers and white supremacists, and this is an argument one frequently hears from progressives, then it's even more incumbent for progressives to be allies to American Jews. Unfortunately, right now, that's not happening. Quite simply, if you condemn high-profile incidents of violence against Jews and ignore anti-Semitism in more benign forms and from one's political allies, you're not a dependable ally. And with the threats to American Jews rising, allies are more important than ever. I've cut and pasted the whole article below, so please do check it out. What's going on? Democrats thought they had a workaround on Senate Republicans' filibuster of voting rights legislation by proposing a talking filibuster, which would allow for a lengthy debate followed by an up-and-down vote. But Joe Manchin quickly killed the idea, even though a year ago he expressed support for a talking filibuster. I give up understanding what Manchin is doing here other than being the proverbial turd in the punch bowl. The only thing I can assume is that he thinks this helps him win re-election in 2024, but if he's going to kill every major Democratic priority and ensure that the Senate remains in dysfunctional gridlock, what exactly is the point of serving six more years? In related news, David Drucker from the Washington Examiner has a fascinating interview with New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu on why he declined to run for Senate in 2022 against Democrat incumbent Maggie Hawson. I was pretty close, Sununu told the Washington Examiner this month during an interview. I wasn't ready to make an announcement, but I was like, okay, this makes sense. I think I could be a voice, nationally. Everything changed after the governor consulted with Republican senators about the aspects of serving on Capitol Hill and what to expect for at least the first two years on the job. Sununu did not like what he heard. They were all, for the most part, content with the speed at which they weren't doing anything. It was very clear that we just have to hold the line for two years. Okay, so I'm just going to be a roadblock for two years. That's not what I do, Sununu said. The governor said the message from virtually every GOP senator he chatted with, and he chatted with most of them, was that they plan to do little more with the majority they are fighting to win this November than obstruct President Joe Biden until, hopefully, 2024 ushers a Republican into the White House. It bothered me that they were okay with that, Sununu said. More than that, Sununu was bothered by Republicans' seeming inability to answer this question. I said, okay, so if we're going to get stuff done if we win the White House back, why didn't you do it in 2017 and 2018? How did the Republican Sununu spoke with answer his challenge? Crickets. Yeah, crickets, the governor said. They had no answer. Rob Lee makes a compelling argument that a potential Russian invasion of Ukraine has little to do with possible NATO membership and much more to do with Russian calculations that if it fails to keep Ukraine inside Moscow's orbit now, it won't get the chance again. I find myself increasingly frustrated with the public debate about Ukraine. On the right, pundits are falling over themselves to declare that the international order will collapse unless the US stands strong in deterring Russian aggression. On the left, there's an inclination to make everything about the United States and the potential for NATO membership. It seems both sides are missing the fact that Russia, like every country, 
is making decisions based on its perceived national interests. And in the case of Ukraine, Moscow has decided the downsides of war, and there are many, are worth the risk to keep Ukraine from moving too close to the West. If that's the case, there is very little the U.S. can do to deter Putin, short of war. It's important to remember that not everything is always about us. Having said that, I agree with Michael Kimmage that it's time for NATO to close its door to new members. Ron DeSantis vs. Donald Trump is the Iran-Iraq war of political conflicts. American Jews were reminded once again last weekend that even in one of the safest countries in the world for Jews, they are never truly safe. A gun-wielding man of British Muslim descent took four worshippers hostage in a synagogue in Colleyville, Texas. After hours of fruitless negotiations, the hostages fled for their lives and the gunman was subsequently killed by an FBI anti-terrorism unit. As is often the case when high-profile anti-Semitic attacks occur, American Jews were bombarded by the now-familiar thoughts and prayers from political leaders and media figures outraged by the latest manifestation of anti-Jewish hatred. But such gestures are increasingly falling flat, particularly as more and more American Jews and Jewish institutions find themselves fearful and under assault. Despite accounting for 2% of the U.S. population, Jews are the victims in more than half of all hate crimes. One in four Jews say they have experienced anti-Semitism in the past year. Wearing the yarmulke in public is becoming an increasingly risky endeavor and an open invitation for ridicule or even assault. Synagogues today in America look more like armed garrisons than open and welcoming places of worship. This is the new reality for American Jews. And if non-Jews want to truly stand with us, they need to do more than mouth empty platitudes. For example, Republicans were quick to condemn the attack in Texas and pledge their bona fides in fighting anti-Semitism, but where was their outrage and just last month former President Donald Trump said Jews used to have absolute power over Congress and that American Jews either don't like Israel or don't care about Israel because they overwhelmingly voted for Barack Obama and Joe Biden. How many of them have spoken out against the routine and obscene use of Nazi atrocities committed against European Jews as an analogy to mask-wearing and vaccine mandates in the fight against COVID-19? Truth be told, most American Jews don't have the highest expectations for Republican politicians. The GOP has long used charges of anti-Semitism as a cudgel for dividing Democrats, all the while looking the other way at anti-Jewish animus in their own ranks. But it's the reaction on the left that's more troubling for Jews, who have long viewed the Democratic Party and progressives as political and cultural allies. Progressives, by and large, are happy to talk about anti-Semitism when the culprit is a white right-winger. They are far more reticent when anti-Jewish hatred hits closer to home. As the situation in Colleyville unfolded, some progressive commentators pointed a finger at white supremacists, which is not necessarily surprising. In 2017 neo-Nazis infamously marched in Charlottesville, Virginia, chanting the Jews will not replace us. In 2018 a deranged gunman stormed the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh and killed 11 worshippers. But anti-Semitism is more than just the oldest prejudice, it's also bipartisan and multicultural.
Deeply liberal New York City is host to the majority of anti-Semitic assaults in the United States, and they are almost never carried out by white nationalists. In 2018 and 2019, Orthodox Jews in New York were routinely the victims of anti-Semitic attacks, including slapping, kicking, sucker punches, death threats, menacing, vandalism, and swastika graffiti. According to the NYPD's hate crime stats for 2019 and 2020, more than half of those arrested for anti-Jewish hate crimes were persons of color. In 2019 two members of the extremist black Israelite sect took over a kosher supermarket in Jersey City and killed four people, including a local police detective. Weeks later, a machete-wielding black man stormed a Hanukkah celebration in Monzi, New York, killing one person. And then last May, Jews were attacked on the streets of Los Angeles, New York City, and a host of other major American cities by pro-Palestinian demonstrators. In Ball Harbor, Florida, four men surrounded a Jewish family and yelled, Die Jew, at a man in a yarmulke before threatening to rape his wife and daughter. On college campuses, virulent criticism and demonization of Israel and its supporters is frequently lodged in the language of anti-Semitism and the ridicule and exclusion of Jewish students. Media attention, and outcry from liberal commentators, has been far more muted after these incidents. At the very least, there's been little introspection at the growing prevalence of anti-Semitism committed by non-white supremacists. Few recent episodes have highlighted this resounding silence more than the reaction to comments by Representative Ilan Omar, who in February 2019 took to Twitter to declare that American support for Israel is all about the Benjamins, a long-standing conspiracy theory that claims Jews use their allegedly vast wealth to exercise influence and political power. Though she half-heartedly apologized, only weeks later she obliquely suggested that American Jews maintain dual loyalty to the United States and Israel. She also argued that her comments are unfairly labeled as anti-Semitic because she is Muslim. Many progressives rallied around the embattled congresswoman, all the while telling concerned American Jews that she meant no harm and that attacks against her were motivated by Islamophobia. This is a recurrent phenomenon in the discourse on anti-Semitism. American Jews are perhaps the only minority community in America who are regularly told by progressives that what they view as anti-Semitism really isn't anti-Semitism. As the British comedian and writer David Battiel notes in his book, Jews Don't Count. It is a progressive article of faith, Battiel notes, that those who do not experience racism need to listen, to learn, to accept and not challenge, when others speak about their experiences. Except, it seems, when Jews do. Non-Jews, including progressive non-Jews, are still very happy to tell Jews whether or not the utterance about them was in fact racist. I was reminded of this odd circumstance in an exchange with the MSNBC anchor Mehdi Hassan. In the hours after the Colleyville incident, he used his nightly newscast to express solidarity with the American Jewish community. You are not alone. We have your back. And in this moment of fear, hate, and violence, you can count on the rest of us, Hassan said. Many Jews were rightly gratified by Hassan's empathetic words.
However, after I pointed out on Twitter that it's not enough to simply express solidarity with Jews after high-profile incidents, Hassan directed me to an op-ed he'd written several years ago defending then-British Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. Corbyn had infamously made a host of anti-Semitic comments. He also associated with and defended virulent Jew-haters. But after British Jews published an open letter decrying Corbyn as an existential threat to Jewish life in the UK, Hassan wrote, don't be silly. He added that it was possible to commit to both defeating anti-Semitism and electing a Corbyn-led government. I don't write to point fingers at Hassan, who is humane, fiercely honest, and whose heart is clearly in the right place. Rather, I offer up this admonition as a teachable moment. Allyship means listening to American Jews and they point out anti-Semitism, not questioning what centuries of experience have taught us about anti-Jewish hatred. Having our back only some of the time is not enough. Allyship also means looking inward at the ways that anti-Semitism has taken root and flourished in American society. Indeed, the Texas hostage-taker took hostages in a synagogue because he believed that Jews exercised disproportionate power in the United States, and that by taking Jews captive his demands to free a convicted Islamic terrorist would be met. It is an idea that is widely held across the political spectrum, from those who highlight the allegedly outsized power of prominent philanthropists like George Soros to those who see financial suasion as the explanation for American support for Israel. Quite often, non-Jews use anti-Jewish tropes or speak in the language of anti-Semitism, not even understanding the prejudicial nature of their words. That's why it's so important to listen to Jews when they talk about the sometimes subtle nature of anti-Semitism and the scars it leaves behind, just as we must listen to any minority community talk about prejudice. The best possible response to anti-Jewish hatred is not just to speak up in the immediate aftermath of incidents like the one in Colleyville. That's easy. The hard part is recognizing anti-Semitism when it occurs in its more benign, but common forms, and forcefully speaking out against it. Frankly, Jews need to more forcefully demand such attention from their nominal progressive allies. Far too often we accept a few breadcrumbs of support rather than demanding more than just fancy words. Quite simply, if you can speak out against Jews being held hostage in a synagogue but balk at condemning the routine use of anti-Semitic tropes by your political and cultural allies, then American Jews should not be interested in ritualistic affirmations of support. If you want to be true allies of American Jews, thoughts and prayers simply won't do.